we intend to build biorefineries that will take whole wet seaweed, creating a number of outputs, biopackaging, plant-based protein, which is in very high demand these days. So the company developed its technology over the last decade and now have a very, very good machine for doing this uh, sandblasting operation, but with zero dust and zero emission. I found out that 100 million shipping containers go up to 50% empty, you know, shipping empty air from one port to the other. Today, it's a $25 billion problem. What you're hearing is an unmistakable sound, the infectious optimism of the committed entrepreneur. Three teams working on big ocean-based problems and trying to make big returns for investors at the same time. They are all, in a way, a version of the same juicy-sounding proposition, that capital and entrepreneurship can combine to solve the many problems of the high seas. Or, to put it more crudely, that cleaning up the ocean can be profitable as well as virtuous. It's a beguiling thought, luring innovators and investors like so many mackerel to a glittering lure. But is it true? Can we make money saving the ocean? That's the question for this week. Our house is still on fire. This is Thermopylae. This is Agincourt. We have to rise to this occasion. The transition isn't going to be easy. In case you've somehow missed it, and it seems unlikely if you're the kind of person who wants to listen to this podcast, the ocean is under serious pressure. Climate change, overfishing, pollution, plastic, coral bleaching, deep sea mining, there's a long list of problems on the to solve list, and millions of people who depend on the ocean for either their livelihood or their dinner. Maria Demonaki is very familiar with these problems. Until recently, she was Global Managing Director for the Ocean at the Nature Conservancy. She's also been a Greek Member of Parliament and the Fisheries Commissioner for the EU, no less. She's been immersed in this world for years. So this week, just for fun, we made her world president for the day and asked her what she would do to get to grips with the big ocean to-do list. I think uh, I would try to persuade everybody that there is an opportunity for good investment in ocean. So this means that private money can come and connect with ocean conservation. The problem is that the money that is going to ocean conservation per se is very small, very, very small. It's just a very small portion of the whole philanthropy money. So it's not enough because ocean is big. So the only way to solve the problem is to try to persuade the private investment to come to the ocean in a way that can take some profit, but at the same time to restore the ocean and protect its health. Maria's view is very much supported by some recent work from the World Resources Institute, a non-profit in Washington, D.C. A report they published earlier this year was very bullish about the possible returns on ocean-based investment, especially in decarbonizing shipping, producing sustainable protein, mangrove habitats and offshore wind. Without getting lost in the detail, the bottom line was that every dollar invested in sustainable ocean solutions would yield at least $5 in return, and the impact on the ocean could be huge if the money can be attracted to the solutions. If we really want, we can do it. It needs money, of course. Everything is about the cost, and the cost is not negligible. I'm not naive. We have to find smart ideas to find money from the private sector, for businesses who want to make a difference, from the sustainable investment. 
that's why this will be the future for Russian conservation, I believe. Now, in other areas, the money isn't in short supply. Impact investors already pour funds into solutions for climate change, biodiversity loss, and other terrestrial problems. But those in the know say that ocean finance is years behind by comparison. John Seal is a man on a journey. He's been involved in startups as both a founder and investor and has a solid background in finance. But lately, a new passion has entered his life. I suppose we're, like most people, we're all concerned about the health of the planet, and I was too, but I can't say I really did very much about it. However, my wife was very active in being concerned about this, um, went and got involved in sustainability doing a course uh, at Cambridge. Uh, where she got a sustainability certificate and worked in that space for a bit of time before starting Oceanium. So she's been very plugged in and up to speed on this for quite some time and kept talking to me about it. And I, it kept not really penetrating my brain that I could combine really finance with, with this world of sustainability. And it, it, it did take a while, but eventually the light went off and I could see how there could be some linkages um, really with, with, with market-based returns, but I, I began to see that it could uh, be a real business proposition that we could do both good things for people on planet as, as well as making a acceptable market-based returns uh, for investors. And that's when I light really went off and I got excited and I started to make that shift myself. John is now the interim CFO of Oceanium, a startup that has big plans to refine seaweed into things like biopackaging, plant-based protein, and high-value nutraceuticals. He's super enthusiastic about the company and the impact they could have. But at the same time, with his finance background, he's very clear-eyed about investors in the space. I think we have to look at the blue finance space is still very early stage, which means there are not lots of lots of investors that have been doing this for a long time and then are very knowledgeable and comfortable with all the risks at whatever point of the development or investment spectrum you may be on whether that's from vc all the way up to investment grade financeable projects but i think the real issue uh where we are is again we don't have a sophisticated system like we do in the tech world where there's silicon valley and equivalents of that around the world where it's well known the path you go and how you work your way through the VC community to the private equity community to either IPO or state, you know, all that's all been very well set up now for decades. Olivier Renaud wants to be one of those investors. Originally from Marseille, Olivier grew up with all the maritime passion you would expect of a man who spent his childhood in such a seafaring town. He then spent years in French banks in a career that took him all over the world. On his travels, he was able to see more and more clearly how badly misused the ocean had become. So he decided to see if he could use his financial acumen to do something about it. He co-founded Blue Ocean Partners to invest in innovations that can help directly with Sustainable Development Goal 14, Life Below Water. Unsurprisingly, he's a true believer when it comes to the powers of private capital and innovation to solve the world's big problems. And what we wish to do with uh, Blue Ocean's partners is to be able to find innovations that will help address those threats much quicker and in a more efficient way than if we only rely on traditional methods. Uh, so to give an example, if we look at uh, plastic pollution, so today a big part of the plastic pollution that ends up in the ocean comes from 
uh, Asian countries where they don't have the infrastructure for waste management. And, uh, and so one way to treat the problem is to say, okay, we are going to invest billions in waste management uh, infrastructure to, 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 to be at the same level of, uh, of treatment of waste as, uh, as we, we are in Western countries. But, uh, but this is billions of euros to be invested. Uh, if we are going through innovations, uh, we can find some innovations where uh, we will leapfrog this, uh, this demand, being this, uh, this investment in infrastructure, and, uh, and then have a very widespread impact to reduce the plastic pollution. In, and we will only need to invest like, I don't know, millions or hundreds of millions, but less than if we build the full infrastructure. So that's, uh, that's basically what we want to do. Olivier says solutions aren't a problem. The world is bursting with bright young minds coming up with great new ideas. But finding investors can be tougher. Not that there aren't plenty of those too, but there are a lot of different investor types out there and they don't all have the same appetite for the ocean. Bankable solutions is not difficult. So we have a very good pipeline uh, with very good projects. On the other hand, uh, finding in investors willing to uh, to invest in a, in, a, in a fund specialized on this strategy, uh, that's a bit more tricky. We will have, if I talk about different categories of investors, uh, we will have some corporates willing because they do feel the, that there's a pressure in terms of marketing and, and image uh, to act on this. Uh, but often they really want to be addressing the specific problem that they, they, they identified in their, in their operations. And so they are very, very specific and it's not possible to build a, f a fund with a strategy as specific as what they want. We will have uh, institutional, uh, private institutional investors. Uh, so most of them, it's very difficult and well, because the, the way private institutional investors, the way they think is that I want to to, to invest my money in a fund that has proven for the last 20 years that they made money out of it. And, uh, and of course, this is not very easy to, 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 to come with a new strategy when they have that mindset. Uh, then we have uh, uh, family offices and high net worth individuals. Uh, so those are much more uh, open to the idea because they have a, a, a stricter, mean more direct control on where they put their investments. And uh, a lot of them, uh, and we see this trend is, is really growing. Uh, they kind of, they made money uh, from their, their own, uh, I mean, entrepreneurship or, or I mean, company or whatever. And in fact, is really a big trend for family offices. But the, 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 the only thing is that the, each individual amount from family offices is quite limited. Uh, and, uh, and then we have the last category that we are talking to, which is public institutional investors. And, uh, and today I would even say that with the, the COVID crisis, uh, public money's got more power than before because the, 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 the public sector can decide what are the industries they want to, to, to favor after the crisis. And there's been a clear political uh, decision uh, as of today, I hope it will, uh, it will stay like this, that the, the, the public money that will help for the relaunch of the economy post-COVID crisis will go uh, for ecological transition. So that's, uh, that's quite uh, 
it's an opportunity for us. Now, I'm not, much to my regret, uh, much of a money guy, which is my excuse for asking both Olivier and John a very unsophisticated question. Can you actually get rich saving the ocean? First, being rich is not necessarily uh, our target. <laughs> uh, so so the, the impact is important. But yes, uh, we think that in particular the, entrepre- the entrepreneurs we invest in, uh, they, they, they can become rich and, and save the ocean at the same time. They are coming with some innovation that has a positive impact. And because it has a positive impact, uh, it's, uh, it brings a solution to a problem that is now more and more considered as a problem to be solved. I actually think you can. <laughs> I don't know if it should be the main, necessarily the main driver. And I, I, what's been wonderful about working more in this space is that it's pretty clear that the vast majority of people are, are driven by doing something good. Uh, some people want to do something good. Some people feel it's an imperative because they, they really feel uh, that the planet is under pressure and that, that we may be uh, heading towards extinction. Um, so it depends where you are in the spectrum. But it's, it's very clear that uh, there's numerous, numerous opportunities to um, make reasonable, if not highly attractive financial returns. So there you have it. The right investor comes together with the right idea and they can clean up the ocean and make a load of cash at the same time. Sounds so straightforward, doesn't it? So the, I, I think the problem is, I've heard this refrain so often. I, I hear the finance community say, we got lots of money, but we don't see the deals. And I hear the, you know, kind of the other sort of ocean community say, well, we got lots of deals, but we don't see the money. And, and what they're trying to do, it's almost like they're, you know, they're trying to come in at, at, at different entry points and they're not, they're not meeting. This is Christian Tulecki, who runs Friends of Ocean Action for the World Economic Forum, as well as the Sustainable Ocean Initiative at the World Resources Institute. What that often means in practice is that he's a kind of matchmaker. You know, have, you know, at the Ocean Committee, have a better understanding of where they should be attracting the finance and going to it so they don't waste lots of time trying to chase, you know, chase the money in an area that's just never going to happen, and managing the expectations of the finance community to say, you know, if you want a return on investment, you know, Here's what you're going. If there's something else that you want to, you have a 10 year loss leader, this is something you want to do. Or at this scale and this impact, then, then this is your right, you know, sort of ocean mechanism to invest in. And just as the ancient and labor intensive art of matchmaking lovers has been disrupted by the likes of Hinge and OkCupid, so this process of matching investors and solutions can also be brought into the digital realm. Enter something called Uplink. Uplink is a new venture for the forum, basically a way to crowdsource solutions to the world's biggest problems. If you've got an idea about how to solve one of those problems, you can go to the platform and enter it. It will be assessed, and if it's good enough, it will eventually find its way to investors, relevant experts, and whoever else the forum can connect it with to help scale the idea up. You might be someone who's sitting in a, in a small community in the Philippines, and you've got a great idea, or you've got a problem. And, and there may be someone in Madagascar or in, in Lisbon and, or in Santiago that has a similar problem or a similar idea, but it's never going to get visibility or it's going to take forever to get, you know, to really get seen. And what, what, what Uplink does is, you know, it allows you to give visibility to your, you know, to your solution or your idea or crowdsource what you need in terms of help to solve the, the problem you're facing. And, and, you know, 
you sort of build a community, you build an ecosystem around that. And I, and, and then of course the challenge then is attracting the funding, right? If you're a, um, I don't know, a startup, you know, investor, you know, and you want to, you're, you're trying to create a, um, a cohort of actors. You could spend a lot of time flying around the world, having lots of conversations, doing X, Y, and Z, but Uplink then provides you that one-stop shop of everybody to go, go in and say, whoa, I've got 20 potential you know, uh, members of a cohort that I, I might be able to fund. Um, and then get that funding through to them, mentor them, and move them through the, you know, through the system. Over the summer of 2020, Uplink ran its first batch of ideas for ocean problems. And for anyone who still thinks that there's a shortage of ideas that can both impact the ocean and make a dime, this was an eye-opener. For the record, there were a lot of great ideas. Six of them made it to the finals, where they had to pitch their idea to a range of experts and investors the forum had picked. We spoke to a few of them, which brings us back to those plucky entrepreneurs from the beginning of the episode, who all have cool stories to tell. Take Roger Larson, for instance. He's a serial entrepreneur now working on Panovo, a company looking to clean up the process of sandblasting paint off ships and oil rigs. Instead of simply blasting grit onto the assets and letting it fall into the ocean with the paint, they suck it back into the system. Now, if you're anything like me, you might be thinking, that doesn't sound super sexy. But it gets more interesting when you learn that paint is mostly made of plastic. And so when it gets blasted into the ocean, it's effectively like dumping tons of microplastics. Roger spoke to me from what looked like a suitably maritime background on the Norwegian coast. He told me Panovo has been around for years already. Originally, they saw their technology as a solution to a health and safety problem. Dust, basically. And they were doing okay with that until the oil price slump of 2014. So at that point, we as shareholders decided, or the shareholder group decided, this technology is simply too good to, to not uh, survive this oil crisis. So we need to kind of reset the company. And at that time, we started to see, so what other value propositions are there? Are there other segments that would appreciate over technology other than the traditional oil and gas where we started? And so then we started to find we started to find areas where sand in the operation is absolutely no go. So inside a submarine, for example, or inside a tube tunnel, uh, or um, next to a, a nuclear power plant. In these areas, you cannot have sand flying around. You don't have an option. So we found niches in these areas. So as we focus more and more on kind of niches where the sand were actually a, the real problem that led us to also hang on a minute sand is actually microplastic the world's sudden hyper awareness of microplastics has been a pivotal moment for roger's team once they figured out the potential environmental impact of their product they realized it could be just the turbo charge it needed the sand that we blast off is is, is a lot of microplastics because the paint is plastic the, the paint we brush off then we realized this is more a play for impact investors and we recruited some new people to the company we kind of reset the company and now we are totally targeting impact investors that want to make an impact in terms of preventing microplastics entering the ocean their main job now is getting regulators to enforce their laws as well as working out just how much microplastic they can stop from entering the sea if you get a regulatory decision, then the, your client have no choice. Uh, but so, so and, and we are absolutely certain that will happen because the law 
the Pollution Act in most countries already don't allow this uh, emission of the, of the paint residuals. It's just that the regulators are not aware of the problem. So for, it's not about changing regulations, it's about educating the regulator to start policing their existing regulation. And that we, are, we already see starting to happen. But we don't think that's the only thing. We think that as asset owners start to be aware of the problem, they will take the responsibility themselves. Because why should they sit and wait for a regulation that eventually will come when they, if they realize that the ship they are owning or the platform they are owning or the wind farm they are owning is emitting enormous amounts of microplastics from the maintenance process and they have a choice to just use another tool and then they fix that, pro they plug that hole basically. Uh, I think what everyone is struggling with right now is not to get the concept we are we're talking about. I mean, people are, are blown away when we talk, uh, tell our story. It's more to quantify how big is this problem. And to be quite frank, no one really knows. There's no research that can say it's this many tons per year, etc., etc. Simply because the fact that paint is plastic is something not many people have dived into. There's very little research on it. Okay, spoiler alert here. Panovo didn't win the uplink sprint in the end. So was it worth it for them to take part? Well, we, 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 we never entered this to win anything. We entered this to get through that, to see whether our idea was good enough to kind of be uh, appreciated. And, and it was, and that is for us winning. Through this, we have gotten contacts and access to people that we otherwise uh, would be very difficult for us to reach. And so that coming back to kind of this impact investment point I made that an in impact investor opens up a network to you. Well, so does the uplink challenge. It opens up a network um, to the relevant people. And I think that is the biggest um, impact it had on our companies that we have gotten access to people and we have gotten attention around the problem that we're trying to solve. Next up is Oceanium, which I've talked about a bit already. They're making a big play with seaweed. John Seal can explain. Uh, we're in our R&D phase. We intend to build biorefineries that will take whole wet seaweed that is sustainably farmed from seaweed farmers, bring that into our biorefining unit, creating a number of outputs. Uh, one main output stream is to create biopackaging, which hopefully solve the plastic problem and keep plastic out of oceans. And this will be a home compostable marine safe product. And we also have a food and ingredient stream that will create plant-based protein, which is in very high demand these days, um, functional fiber, as well as beta-glucan and phacoidin, which are high value nutraceuticals. This is an area with huge potential, and a lot of players are already working on seaweed-based materials. Again, though, as with all startups, finance is both mission-critical and a huge time sink. COVID hasn't made it any easier. So where has most of their cash come from? I would say it's mainly on the impact for-profit, so those, those impact funds that are for-profit making. Um, some of it is um, definitely some VC some family offices, although those tend to be via some introductions. Um, and then uh, 
um, also from the food tech side, because we're, our outputs are um, mostly uh, focused on the food and ingredient side. So we're getting some interest from, from that side of the world. And in food tech, there are some people who also impact these seeds. I, what I have seen, um, I think there's quite a few ocean accelerators out there. Uh, certainly there's um, grant money out there uh, to help um, blue startups. There is interest uh, in doing blue bonds um, for investment grade opportunities that are tend to be big infrastructure pro projects. Where I think the issue lies is that next stage of growth capital, the, the, the second round bigger ticket seed money, the uh, A, Series A, Series B investors to kind of get it up to uh, profitability and a scale that can attract private equity firms um, then to take those companies on to the next stage. That's where I do see there may be a lack of capital and already we're, in, we're encountering a little bit of that as we move out of the accelerator and out of our first seed round stage to our, to our next round. And, uh, but I think that represents an opportunity for investors to get involved in, in that space. Investors listening, you know what to do. And finally, it seems only fair to introduce the winners of the Uplink Sprint competition, an outfit called Cubex, whose mission is to revolutionize the LCL container market. And if you're anything like me, you'll have no idea what that means or why it's good for the ocean. So let me explain briefly. LCL is the catchy acronym for less than container load. So those are all the shipping containers on a ship that aren't full but aren't empty. It turns out there are a lot of these, 36 million units every year, and around 25 to 40% of their capacity goes empty. As a result, ships are ferrying half-empty containers all over the world, which is obviously a big inefficiency, and therefore, somewhere, emissions could be cut. And incidentally, money can be made. Asan Tariq is the co-founder and CEO. Uh, in the past 40 years, there's not been a single centralized marketplace or one place where you could see how many other people are shipping half-empty containers from the same destination to the origin, um, from the origin to the destination. Uh, so you could share that pricing. Maybe both of you are paying the full price where both of your containers are half-empty. It could be merged into one shipment, but it didn't exist. In 97, I believe, um, Maersk made an effort to do that, but they couldn't uh, really uh, make it a global platform because from the little research that I have on it is because they were not an independent party. They were one of the biggest players and the rest of the industry did not approve of one player, you know, um, capturing uh, a marketplace which would create a bias for the customers as well. So it didn't work out. So we came up with the idea as being the independent player who would connect any empty space on an LCL container uh, with any consumer or a manufacturer or a wholesaler or anybody, uh, even an individual who wants to maybe ship one, one set of sofas or chairs or fruits or vegetables from one country to the other. Our minimum size of booking an order is one cubic meter, so it could be anything from anywhere to anywhere. Today it's a $25 billion problem. So it was quite an interesting um, market gap and a big problem that could be easily solved utilizing technology. Um, so that's how we started with Cubex Global.
It's worth noting the shipping industry, although it does have targets and plans in place to improve things, is a major polluter. Cargo ships burn very dirty fuel in very large quantities and emit hundreds of millions of tonnes of carbon every year. Shipping accounts for about 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions, which is about the same as Germany, and that percentage is climbing fast. The idea here is to solve a huge inefficiency that has both financial and environmental value. It's textbook stuff and could well be another example of people making a profit from cleaning up the ocean. In the interests of informing any listeners out there who might be quietly incubating their own big ideas, I wanted to ask Asan what it's done for them to win Uplink. Uh, we have raised you know, $1 million in the last month uh, post-winning uh, the inaugural Ocean Solutions Sprint, and we have more interest. Uh, the day they published our video, so World Economic Forum came up with a video that they do in their um, uh, own style, and they post this 30-second uh, to one-minute video about an innovative approach to a big problem. So once that video was published, within 30 minutes of that video being posted, we started getting like hundreds and hundreds of queries uh, uh, and leads on our website to the point that we had to literally, I mean, there was so much uh, bandwidth, like live traffic coming from these links that we had to literally put up a message that we are trying to cater to the you know high demand, but please uh, bear with us while we look into each one of these queries. So. I was connected to hundreds of these people in the first 24 hours of posting those videos via World Economic Forum's platforms. I think we had in excess of 500 people reach out to us, organizations, individuals who are potential clients who wanted to ship stuff from point A to point B. They were interested. We got connected to um, the Federal Chamber of Commerce from Mexico. We were approached by a few you know, government departments in Oman in Dubai, it was amazing. As everybody knows, it's not all about winning. All the semi-finalists have got helpful exposure out of their Uplink experience, win or not. So all 12 startups, we just had a call two days ago with all 12 startups uh, who were in the semi-finals and finals. And you know, it was discussed like what is needed for every single startup and they're gonna push it and they're gonna give it the leverage it requires. So that was a big you know, thing for the investors to see. Um, that an organization like World Economic Forum was backing this. And that helped us uh, close the round. We were actually oversubscribed. So we make sure that we have a, uh, uh, you know, people that can provide feedback on the substance side of things, you know, on the issues that they're trying to address. Um, some that can provide, you know, sort of feedback on the, on the business side of things as a business model. And then some on the, on the finance side of things and sort of probing sort of areas on the, on the finance. So you, when you start to bring that ocean business finance together you know you hope that that you know going through this process you know not only do the sprint participants benefit by having that engagement and kind of getting people excited about what they're doing but also to um you know uh you know moving those through that that you know that that the, the collective you know sort of adjudication panel thinks you know really has great potential and and you know impact on a on a short time scale the, the great bonus is yes you know whilst you know some, the one we have sort of like you know winners of the you know of the sprint we um they're part of this wider cohort of of, of actors so you know once once part of uplink always part of uplink and you know you can benefit from having that connection within you know the forum and um and that sort of the wider you know the wider network 
I should say there were plenty of others who entered and also had excellent ideas for things like coral restoration, ocean plastic collection and more that we don't have time to go into, but you can see them all at the Uplink website. Have a look, you might be inspired. And Uplink isn't only about the ocean. It's inviting solutions on all sorts of other challenges, including COVID, biodiversity, the circular economy, and more. So what about our question? Can saving the ocean be profitable as well as virtuous? We think the answer is yes. And if you're looking to invest in a bankable solution for the environment, or if you're working on something amazing that needs a capital infusion, then Uplink might be able to help you. So don't be shy. That's all for this week. Next week, we're looking at the role of the global investment community and in pushing for greener behavior from businesses. In short, can investors save the planet? Please join us for that. We've got some great interviews. And in the meantime, as always, farewell.